It's time again for Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein and Associates, and Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic, and uh, the Bills coming off a mammoth 44-34 victory over the Seattle Seahawks in Orchard Park, and as I had mentioned in my column after the game, uh, they could have won this game anyway. Uh, they could have beaten the Seahawks as they miraculously beat the Patriots as they came back to beat the Dolphins in week two. And we all looked askance at those and like, well, there's, but this was the Seahawks and any victory over the Seahawks uh, is a major, major triumph and uh, can't even discount the fact that the Seahawks were playing on the road because we talked about it on the show with Joel Staniszewski last week, uh, the Seahawks, it doesn't matter whether they're home or on the road, they win. Uh, they went into that game 10 straight wins in the Eastern time zone. So uh, to handle the Seahawks like they did, I guess I'll just open the floor. Uh, your guys thoughts regarding um, how maybe your feelings of the bills and their long-term uh, outlook for 2020 into the 2021 postseason changes based on what you saw yesterday? I don't think it's a drastic change for me personally. And that's not to say that the, the win wasn't really impressive because I think it was. Um, I, I think what it, it kind of puts into focus for me is that if they get the right matchups, they can – make a run. If they're playing like they played yesterday, they can make a run. And when you can beat the Seahawks, I think you can confidently say you can compete in January, which has been a legitimate question about this team. But the reality is still that some of the best teams in the AFC have given them problems. And those are the teams that are a roadblock. Uh, you know, the Seahawks came into the, the game with the worst passing defense in football and it actually got worse on Sunday. Josh Allen threw for 415. I think they were averaging, giving up 358 coming into the game. So a really, um, you know, bad defense. But I, I think it was an important win for Josh Allen to be able to go toe-to-toe with a quarterback like Russell Wilson, an offense that is a consistent threat to score and to keep pace, set the pace, really. And there's a pressure that comes with that. I know they say the quarterback doesn't play against the other quarterback, but he does when you know, man, if I don't move the ball on this drive, that guy's jumping back on the field and he might, uh, you know, ram it right down the defense. So there, I do think it's a factor and it's one of the first times we've seen Josh Allen really rise to that occasion. Now it's about these defenses. He doesn't match up well against clearly the chiefs, the Titans, the Ravens. We'll see last year. He didn't match up well against them. He's a different guy this year. The Steelers, same thing. Last year didn't look great. He's a different guy, so maybe this year it'll look better. But those are the four teams standing in their way in January. They might even get one of them in the first round. So um, beating a team like the Seahawks, who play great offense but lousy defense, that's a great matchup for the Bills all the time. There's not a lot of those teams in the AFC in their way, I guess would be um, the way I, I look at it in perspective. Matt's analysis, I would say, spot on that it really maybe came down to the matchups favoring the Bills in this game and that 
Seattle was probably more beatable than their six and one record suggested. But in a simple sense, and we talked about this in the preview podcast coming in on Friday, it does change a lot of the perception of Buffalo and the calculus when looking at where they could go down the stretch and later into the postseason. Simply, if you just were to look at games and start picking wins and losses, this was a game that a lot of people, even some Bills fans and supporters, probably thought, uh, you know, maybe you marked that down as a loss for the Bills. So now you're looking at different games where you think the Bills couldn't win and you have to give them a, a more of a chance and believe that they can beat just about anybody. It's similar to some of those games down the stretch last season, like the Dallas win on Thanksgiving. And I think in another simple sense, they won at home. I know there's no fans and it's not the same atmosphere, but I felt this way about the Bills when they were a worse team in years past, and especially when they're a good team. You have to like their chances of beating anybody in that stadium, especially when there's fans, but maybe even when there's out, they seem to play with a little bit more spirit. And I think if, they're, if they win the division, which they look like odds-on favorites to do that, they're going to get a home playoff game against a team that maybe we think is better, doesn't match up as well with Buffalo, but at home, I think if you're a Bills fan, you have to believe now that this team can win that home playoff game against just about any opponent that they're going to be matched up against. And I think that's a big change from where we were a week or two ago after the Bills had suffered some losses and didn't play great in their win against the Patriots. Yeah, you look ahead at the schedule going back a couple of weeks and you see New England ahead. And of course, New England has has crumpled uh, but at least a few weeks into the season, Cam Newton looked like maybe he was rejuvenated. Bill Belichick has the magic, uh, able to use his interchangeable parts, uh, which he has done so masterfully over the past two decades, losing players who opted out on because of COVID, injuries, what have you. And so, but I'm going back prior to the Patriots game. That still had a, a mystique to it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Seattle – and then I think you looked ahead also in Arizona a little bit, but Arizona's on the road. I think maybe especially after beating Seattle now, it almost feels like house money. Like ne- next week's game against Arizona doesn't have the same uh, significance um, than if, if the Bills were scuffling and really needed a win heading into their bye uh, to find some sort of momentum or confidence. Uh, but then I think you look ahead to the Steelers game, which is week 14 as, a, as maybe the next big marker. Um, and yes, that's uh, way down the road and a lot's going to happen between now and then. But the Steelers have been vulnerable for the past few weeks. Uh, Mike Tomlin's getting a little upset. He says he's getting um, frustrated with having to talk about pulling games out late. Um, going down to Dallas, a team that they were just supposed to wipe the field with and uh, almost losing that game. So, you know, maybe the Steelers, uh, you know, based on what we saw on Sunday, what we, what we got out of the Bills versus what we saw out of the Steelers, and that's the, that's the game Western New York got at 4 o'clock. As soon as the Bills game was over, you could look at it and say, whoa, maybe the Steelers aren't the big uh, hurdle that uh, we thought they'd be, and now you're still back to what Matt said at the very beginning of this conversation still – the stepping stones of getting to the point where you say we can beat these other guys and a victory like they did over Seattle with maybe some of the other teams coming back a little bit. I, I guess what I'm getting at in a very rambling way is the confidence or the mentality that the bills may have 
when you beat a team like Seattle to say that when they do go up against one of these teams again, whether it's the Steelers in week 14 or whoever they get in the playoffs, they're not thinking back to, man, we still haven't beaten the Chiefs or the Titans or even going back to Houston in the playoffs last year. I think now that the Bills head into these later weeks of autumn and into winter, they're going to be thinking about what they did to the Seattle Seahawks in Orchard Park and the fact that we can beat anybody. And especially as Jonah said, if it's at home, these are the types of things that, that build a team's uh, identity foundation um, that, uh, that comfort, that peace of mind that they have when they prepare for a game, when they walk down that tunnel, when the, you know, the whistle blows, all that stuff. We've been here before and we've done it uh, because that's something that the Bills haven't been able to really reflect back on and say, you know what, we've done this before, guys. This is, let's just do it again because they haven't done it before. Yeah, I think if you, if you look at this game, I think the Bills won it because of the offense and the way that Josh Allen got them off to a fast start and sort of ran it up on the Seahawks. But I think it's actually a more important game long-term for the defense. And certainly, you know, usually when you allow the quarterback to throw for 390 yards and you let up 34 points, it's not necessarily considered a good game from a defensive standpoint, but they turned the ball over four times and got back to feeling like a team that can handle any offense that's thrown their way. And that was the calling card of, of Sean McDermott's teams in the first three years that he was here. It hasn't really been the case up until yesterday in 2020. And so I think that is important for that side of the ball going forward. The, the question will be, you know, with Josh Allen, when he sees those defenses again, the defenses that, that seem to have his number, um, or did earlier this year. They, they ran into him at a good time, whatever it was. Is he going to have the answer? Is he going to have the counterpunch? Or are they fighting an uphill battle when they run into the Chiefs or the Titans? Um, you know, but from a defensive standpoint, from a matchup standpoint, when they run into the Ravens, um, you know, potentially in the playoffs, I don't think it's going to be a case of, oh, man, how do they possibly slow down Lamar Jackson? He's been just okay this year, and the Bills have slowed down plenty of, of, of good passers. Uh, and, you know, when they run into the Steelers, same question. The question will be on, on the other side of the ball because they haven't – I wouldn't say they have a, a lot left to learn about Josh Allen between now and January. Um, he kind of has established himself as this guy who's good enough to be considered their future at quarterback. Um, where he ranks among league quarterbacks is uh, subject to debate, but against bad teams um, and against good matchups for um, not bad teams, I should say bad defenses or good matchups for this offense teams that play lots of man coverage um, and don't have the corners to keep up with his receivers. He is capable of games like we saw yesterday. He wasn't even capable of those games last year. And so now that you have a quarterback capable of doing that gives you a shot in January, but to me, you learn about him. The next stage of learning about him and this team doesn't come until January. He could throw for 403 touchdowns every day from now until the wild card round. And, you know, if he, if he looks like he did in October in the wild card round, there's going to be some frustrated, frustrated people. And the, the 
conversation will evolve to why can't this guy do it in January? So I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm just saying we're not going to learn, get that next, uh, you know, bit of information until they get to the playoffs. The big caveat I think is that they won the turnover margin yesterday, four to zero, and that might be great for the result, but not sustainable week to week, really against any team, especially good opponents. They still gave up 34 points with those four takeaways so I think you can be concerned. They, they show they could win a shootout against a bad defense. But if their good fortune isn't the same in other matchups, uh, if their good fortune wasn't as good as it was yesterday, they might not have won that game. So I think it is a little bit concerning that the defense still gave up a lot of yards and a lot of points, even though they were able to make the big takeaway plays that have eluded them in previous weeks. Yeah, and I think that it really does change the complexion of how you approach a game defensively. The Bills were up three scores in the third quarter, early in the third quarter, uh, and then up 21 points uh, with about 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. So, of course, you know, you're playing a totally different style of defense that, you know, you're giving up yards, you're giving up, you know, the, obviously the, the long, you know, semi-deflating uh, bomb, 40-yarder uh, late in the game or whatever it was, 65 yards, wasn't it? What was it, 65 yards? I think it was a 55-yarder. 55, 50, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 55 yards to Moore standing by himself in the end zone. That was a weird play. And uh, you think to yourself, okay, even then, even after that play, it wasn't a backbreaker because the Bills were so far ahead. But, um, yeah, there were some things that if you wanted to really nitpick uh, you could uh, get upset with the defense, but they were just they were just trying, you know, the game was kind of over. You just didn't want to give them up in a big chunk like that. Um, but, yeah, you're right, Jonah, four, four takeaways, and um, really it was, it was interesting. I think I would, have, I would have been interested to see if the Seahawks had climbed within a score with time to go how Josh Allen would have handled that because those are the times when you see, especially against another accomplished quarterback where he starts to grind, you know, uh, he starts to um, get a little jittery, but the bills were constantly ahead. They were just quick strike uh, 85 seconds into the game. They're ahead. And that really had to take the edge off uh, any stress of, of trying to, and, and then a three and out by the way. So they score in three plays, force a three and out, uh, make it 14 nothing, and it was cruise control from there. Um, so that really did, uh, did change the entire tenor of the game right from the start and, and take a lot of the pressure off of uh, the Bills uh, and the offense. Well, it was it bizarre. Me, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, Jonah. Well, I just a quick point. It did remind me quite a bit of the early 90s Bills that were never or were rarely a dominant defense but the defense was able to make big plays, get sacks and turnovers and timely plays that swung the game, even if they give up a lot of yards and points. And then on the other end, that was an all-time great offense that you always kind of counted on to score enough points. And the Bills might not be an all-time great offense, but they're a high-scoring, highly productive offense this season. Well, they're an offense that they – that's the game script that they want. I mean, sure, every team wants to jump out to a 17 nothing lead, but – we're starting to see familiar games emerge for this group. And when they jump out to those quick leads, as Tim alluded to, you know, Josh Allen in those tighter games, um, you know, tends to try to make too much happen or um, it's just a different uh, feel. But when they get out to that, that comfortable lead, they're able to do a lot more um, 
on defense that they don't normally do. And they seem a lot more comfortable as an offense sort of dictating to the other side of the ball. I found it really interesting. I listening to Pete Carroll after the game, he seemed completely lost um, for how his team played, even to saying, you know, some guys were playing off coverage, like giving way more cushion than they're supposed to give. And, and he, he was like, he had not seen a game like that since he started coaching the Seahawks, the way that they played. But another thing that he mentioned that I found weird was that he didn't expect the bills to pass the ball quite as much as they did, or completely abandon the run the way that they did, which I mean, that's a massive indictment on Pete Carroll to even admit that. Um, because I think everybody coming into this game, all he had to do was watch Tim Graham and friends uh, on Thursday night with Gerald <laughs> Dixon. We all knew it was going to be, you know, this pass happy game. The Seahawks were statistically the worst pass defense in football. The bills were, you know, when you look at pass, you know, aggressiveness on, you know, neutral down and script situations, they're one of the most pass happy teams in the NFL. They've been borderline bad at running the football outside of that one game against the Patriots, which was in bad weather. And Pete Carroll put all that information together and came out with, you know, he even said we had a great plan to stop the run. If, if they would have run it. Do you think though, Matt, I mean, cause Pete Carroll has been around for so long. He's not an idiot. And, and but, so I'm confused by this. And he did, he did seem, he didn't, and he's maybe he's a good actor from all his time at USC and in being in Los Angeles out on the West coast. Uh, but maybe he's just throwing some cover on his secondary because he knows it's so atrocious and he's maybe just trying to take some of the heat off of those guys because how awful they have been. And even with Jamal Adams back still were, I don't know. I, I just, to me, I thought maybe there was some, some m- mental strategy going on there with saying, because yeah, none of it adds up. None of it makes any sense. And granted, and Bill Barnwell had a stat. Uh, it, he thought it was the most, they, they could only go back so far, like to the mid 2000s, like 2005 or 2007 or something that ESPN's data broke things down by half, that it may have been the most lopsided pass to run ratio in, uh, in history. And because then you go back to the mid 2005s and then the farther you go back, then the lesser the chance that somebody's just going to be throwing the ball, you know, because now you're passing more as time goes on. The farther you go back in history, the more it was run, run first, second down, throw. throw. Anyways, so his theory is it was, it was probably the most pass-heavy first half in NFL history. So, granted, Pete Carroll maybe didn't project that, but he had to expect the Bills to just throw it Wait, all, not, the whole game. He's not stupid. Uh, he's a very good football coach. He's also, to your point, not really – um, you know, ignorant of his messaging. Um, he knows what he's saying and he knows how to, he's very good at the the psychological aspects of the job, be it media or be it handling his team and his players and, um, you know, getting the pulse of those, those guys in the room. But yeah, I, sure. He probably didn't expect it to be as lopsided as it was. It was pretty um, heavily skewed that way, but on a, rare 70 degree day in November, uh, in, in Western New York, I think 
it was a pretty predictable game plan from the Bills. He also, you know, he, he did make a, a point to kind of say that, you know, there's a lot of moving parts on that side of the ball. They, he didn't seem particularly bothered. It was like, well, we'll flush it and we'll go back. We're still six and two, um, you know, whatever life goes on type of thing. They had some, you know, moving parts in and out. But the other thing was they played a lot of man coverage. And a couple of parts of that don't make sense to me. Number one is that teams have been playing a ton of zone coverage over the last month against Josh Allen to great success as Gerald Dixon helped us break down last week. And number two, the Seahawks suck on pass defense. Like they're, they don't have the horses to play man coverage. Like, so I think they got to a point in that game where they said, all right, you're going to throw the ball. We're just going to blitz the hell out of you. And when you blitz like that, you, you know, tend to have to play more man coverage. And to the Bills' credit, they responded. Josh Allen had that good audible uh, to the screen pass, uh, hit John Brown. They got a big chunk. They had two good screens on that drive. Um, but, yeah, this is just to say that that the Seahawks' defense seems to be searching for itself. Um, it, it is bizarre to see a Seahawks defense that's that bad, and it probably underscores um, a larger point that when you pay your quarterback as much money as the Seahawks are paying Russell Wilson, other aspects of your team tend to suffer. And I think that's why this is a a window that the Bills need to take advantage of. Um, The Seahawks won their Super Bowl on Russell Wilson's rookie contract and haven't won one since. So I think when you look at it, through that lens, it makes sense why the defense has fallen apart. Um, and, you know, there's not quite um, the same uh, run support, if you will, from uh, from from that side of the ball for, for Russell Wilson. And it makes, you know, people want to look at 2020 as the start of something that will continue forever in Buffalo until Josh Allen retires. But that's not how it works um, all the time. So 2020, maybe 2021, there's a lot to take advantage of um, with this window. Shampo Travis Bison Kirshner is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Shampo Travis B. Son Kirshner, that's CTBK. Over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Uh, no fans in the stadium, uh, Still. And yesterday would have been a rip-snorting good time. I think uh, for Bills fans, they were cheated of one of the more memorable performances uh, or games, you know, one that they would have been talking about with the energy and the weather. Um, Matt, you actually saw the fans actually got a little a little uh, dose of, of pleasure uh, as as the Seahawks were leaving the stadium last night, that was some good color in your column. Yeah, it was. Um, I tend to leave way earlier than normal from the press box because, 
you get done with these zooms, which happen pretty much right after the game. And then I take off, I don't live far. So I, I write from home and I happened to be leaving at just the perfect time because the Seahawks buses were rolling out. And I'm sure anybody that's been to the stadium has seen those houses that are along Bill's drive there. And there were some fans standing on tables or anything that they could to get the view over the fence. Um, singing the singing to the buses the na 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 and it was it was one of those things where i was like man i'm hearing fans like actually be fans um which we haven't gotten any of that and it's been one of the unfortunate parts of this this year um but they they had a win that was worth uh worth rubbing in in the seahawks faces and they got to do a little bit of that which was which was cool i mean that it's this weird, you know, weird element of they're what sitting in that backyard there. They're a couple hundred yards from the stadium, but didn't get to see in person. You know, you don't and even hear the roar of the crowd. Can't even hear it. I was going to say sitting outside of that stadium, you wouldn't have any idea of a big play, or you just hear yeah. the, the fake crowd other than the the music. train horn going off. <laughs> you know, once in a while. Other than that, yeah, they don't get to to hear anything. So it was. You know, hearing the music and some of the yelling and the screaming, and I'm sure there were, were some libations enjoyed uh, in that in those yards. There, it was. Uh, I don't know, it was kind of a, a cool little thing. I was glad I stumbled upon it. So that was the South Towns uh, on Sunday. On Tuesday, the North Towns are going to host a football game with no fans and a big game uh, for UB football. Uh, Miami is uh, coming to Amherst to play. Again, no fans, which I guess, Joan, I want to ask you about that. I know Governor Cuomo has really been dragging his feet, and I think it's we can see where this is heading. I don't think we're going to have fans in Orchard Park or Amherst or at Syracuse football or wherever, especially with the numbers, uh, with COVID numbers uh, on the rise again as the weather is getting cooler. Um, but UB football, uh, they are the favorites to win the Mid-American Conference, and they're about to have their home opener. Um and uh, I don't know, what's your sense of what, what they're thinking over there at UB regarding this season? It could be a really special season for them, but the, the aspect of not being able to, you know, have their fans, their boosters, family, whatever it is uh, out there to, to join in on this. Well, yeah, I think there's, there's probably some disappointment within the locker room players, coaches, people involved with the team that, like you said, the families and close friends and people like that can't come and watch the games. I don't know if there's much consternation about there not being able to be large crowds. Like you've heard from Bill's players and maybe some people in the Bill's organization that were hoping the state would allow them to have some fans because maybe there was a competitive disadvantage with having to play in these other stadiums where there were fans and Bill's players just wanting quote unquote, hashtag Bill's mafia there with them. I don't get that sense from UB yet. It's early in the season. This is their first home game, second game overall. But you also have to factor in this time of year when they're playing midweek games in November, there aren't a lot of fans at those games to begin with. I mean, maybe there's some students in the band and the atmosphere is different, but MAC players are used to playing in near empty stadiums this time of year normally. Um, so, this, and there's this a lot of being the season opener, maybe, and it's on television. It's a big game. Miami's a. Uh defending champs, all that stuff. Would this, what would this game there's have been a, like, do you think? There's a Gabbert coming to town as well. You know, 
<laughs> right? Right. <laughs> there could be a Gabbard playing live in flesh. No, I don't think they would have. Eh, maybe. It really depends. Maybe as the home opener, because the home opener always gets a big crowd, but the home opener is always in August. On a Saturday. Well, it's not always on a Saturday. Sometimes it is on a Thursday or Friday night, but it's before school starts, before high school football starts. Got it. It's before the Bills are playing. There is generally a big crowd, especially from the students. I don't think on a Tuesday night in November that they would get a large crowd, but maybe it being as big of a game as it is, there are midweek matching games where they've gotten bigger than normal crowds. I remember election day, 2008, it was against Miami and there was a big red versus blue election night theme for that game. And there was a, a decent sized crowd. So maybe, but in general, in the point I made before, the big difference I think with Mac football and a lot of college football, although maybe not every league is that right now, everybody's in the same boat for now. There aren't fans in the stands at any of the Mac games. Maybe that's revisited later. I don't think there will be fans at any Mac games at any point this season. And so maybe championship game, bowl games, possibly. So that's a difference. There isn't a competitive advantage or disadvantage either way. I think everybody's just because they thought their season wasn't going to happen or was going to be the only league playing in the spring. And then they were the last league to come around and play in the fall. I think everybody associated with all of these programs are so happy to be just playing. And I think hopeful that there aren't, continued outbreaks that lead to games being canceled. The MAC, does, the MAC does not have weeks built into the schedule for postponement. So if a game doesn't happen because of a virus outbreak, it's probably not going to happen ever. So I think just playing is good enough for everybody involved for now. And not having fans is just part of the things that we need to get used to right now. I think there's more consternation from high school events where parents or certain amounts of fans, maybe some of them are allowed to attend, you know, certain outdoor activities in high school, you can have two parents, two spectators per athlete, but some indoor events coming up might not allow any spectators. The gymnastics meet I covered on Saturday night, there were no parents allowed. I think there's more people from what I've noticed and heard upset about that than not being able to go to this UB football game tomorrow that will be on ESPN. And if you really wanted to go watch, you can go to the transit drive-in and they're having a little bit of a tailgate thing with, with the weather. That might be a popular option for a lot of people tomorrow. What, uh, what would be – how would you preview this game, Jonah? I know that uh, Gabbert is uh, – I don't know if he's – the designation is officially questionable or what the situation is, but UB's favored to win the game, and uh, I don't know. But what, well, from, what do you from know the UB's perspective, as I wrote in my advanced story for the Niagara Gazette this afternoon, I would call this – you know, it, it's, they could talk about the bellwether counties in counting these election votes. It's the bellwether game for UB season. I really think if they win, then I think you can look at them as, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts as a team that is the favorite in the East division, the favorite then to go to the Mac championship game, possibly win that game and a winnable bowl game. And I don't know if they're actually going to win all eight games on their schedule, but they have the potential to be a team that can run the table. This is their first big test and maybe their biggest test. And if they get past this game, um, you know, you really can start looking ahead and projecting how many wins they can get and having a six, seven, eight win season. And if they lose this game, then Miami's that team that you can talk about being the favorite in the division. And only one team's going to the MAC championship game, and there'll probably be more than two teams playing in a bowl game, but I don't know if there'll be five, six as they're having past years. So the winner of this game is in much better position than the loser of this game to having a successful season. This Miami was the MAC champion last year, the East Division winner. 
It's a rematch of the game that sort of changed the trajectory of Buffalo season last year when Matt Myers got hurt. Kyle Van Trees came in in the second half. UB didn't win that game, but then went on to be a, I don't call them a better team, but they were playing at a different style and a different level and a more productive offense after Kyle Van Trees came into the lineup. And now Miami's in a situation where their quarterback, Brett Gabbert, was knocked out of the game with a head injury. He's questionable to play. A.J. Mayer, who is the quarterback that came in, he was co-Mac East Player of the Week with Buffalo's Jared Patterson. So they kind of did well with the backup quarterback. But if you look at the spread movements, it opened as a 12-point line. It's moved down to 9.5. I think both of those lines are a little too high, considering that Miami is the defending conference champion. But the quarterback seems to be – the Miami quarterback seems to be a big factor into how much of a chance – betters at least are giving the Red Hawks to win this game. And if Buffalo's a 12-point favorite, you really got to think they're going to win the game. Yeah, but some pressure, as you said, because of the implications on this game. This is a game you can't afford uh, to boot. Uh, this is a game that you have to put away and um, for – It really, I think, takes a lot of the steam out of the season if Buffalo loses because, yes, they could still win the division. They could still go to the MAC title game. But now it's looking a lot more tenuous, and you're really watching Miami as much as Buffalo to see if Buffalo can get back. They don't have the tiebreaker, so they're going to have to get a game and a half ahead of Miami, and cancellations can make that math even harder. So I don't want to say the winner of this game wins the division and goes to the MAC championship game and is the team that has the possibility to go 8-0, but it really could break that way to where the winner of this game has that still on the docket and the loser does not. And it's a lot less of an exciting game season to follow for UB fans. I think if they lose this game. Daisy Graham's trying to uh, jump in here. Trying to, she might, she might join us here. I'm not going to ask her. I'm not going to that, but I don't want to pander to uh, the dog lovers in our audience. Uh, If she comes up, she comes up, but I'm trying to, uh Oh, you say hi. No, that's it. Not saying much on the podcast. She's a pretty she's a pretty vocal dog, but she's um, she just comes down and checks on me. She's uh, she's uh, got border collie in her, so especially when everybody's in the house, she just makes her rounds to make sure she's got her eye on everybody. And all right, she comes down, she checks on me. She gets a little scratch on the rump and takes off, and then she'll be back in ten minutes to make sure I'm still here. So. Um, what's the latest Jonah on, uh, on, uh, winter sports in Western New York, uh, governor Cuomo hasn't given us uh, too much, uh, of a lead here, but I guess in an all encompassing bills, fans, UB fans, winter sports, uh, you know, COVID and, and the rising cases have, uh, you know, we had, we, we don't seem to know much about, uh, how our, whether or not we're going to be able to, uh, enjoy our sports and maybe we shouldn't maybe maybe it should all be shut down i don't know that's topic for another day but at least what's the guidance well it's looking discouraging for winter sports starting on time at least and potentially being played locally and that isn't necessarily because of what was said regarding winter sports today but because of the rising case counts especially locally in erie county but statewide as well and as was said today, so Governor Cuomo was asked about it today and didn't really have an answer other than, you know, deferring it to another Department of Health official. Uh, I hope I get this name right, Robert Majika, 
And what he said is the issue right now is we are seeing inclines in different parts of the state, which our locality is definitely one of those parts of the state. That's my interjecting. And, and back to the quote, we are not inclined to open winter sports at this time. Now, that was not an official declaration that the on-paper start date for winter sports November 30th would be moved. But Three weeks from today, as yeah, we're... Yeah. As we're recording this, three weeks from today would be the normal start of the winter sports season. Right. The implication is that it might be moved, especially for the higher risk sports, basketball, hockey, and wrestling. Those, well, schools were hoping to find out about now that they would start on November 30th. This is about the time in the fall when the guidance was put out there for how to practice safely in the fall or the winter, as we're talking about now, and, you know, what the seasons would be like, what sports would be allowed to be played, what sports would not be allowed to be played. I've heard more unofficially from people that I talked to that the way it was going was that on November 30th, certain lower risk sports, bowling, uh, rifle, skiing, and I think boys swimming was the other one, would be allowed to start practicing and then there'd be competition soon after but that sports like basketball, hockey, and wrestling would not be allowed to start practicing on November 30th. That would be more likely to happen sometime after January 1st. I think that the statement from the state today didn't explicitly say that, but really hinted that something like that is what is going to happen. And if you look at rising case counts, and, and if you're really educated on the subject and what sort of things are coming along with vaccination, testing, a lot of that stuff isn't going to happen right away by November 30th. That It's happening more end of December into January, I think we'll be in a somewhat safer environment after January 1st. Maybe it's not good enough to allow the sports to be played at the time, but I think there's a lot higher probability of those sports starting up and having seasons after January than they are here November 30th going into December. All right, guys, let's wrap it up with one last winter sports note. Uh, Bodog, the betting online site, uh, put out some uh, numbers today regarding where the Toronto Raptors are going to play their home games in 2020-2021. Nashville is favored as a plus 250. Toronto is next at plus 350. Buffalo is third at plus 500. Now, we know from the people that we've spoken to that I think that if you could take not Buffalo, I would be betting on that because I don't think that any discussions have been had regardless of all the different politicians who are angling for it and hoping that they can repeat what happened with the Toronto Blue Jays uh, here in Buffalo again and make this the home of the, the Raptors during the pandemic. Uh, but um, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. I know we, we all love our NBA and uh, we've discussed it here on the show before. Uh, it seems, uh, you know, at Kansas City was the favorite. You know, last time we talked about this, everybody was talking about Kansas City. Let me double check where Kansas City is. Um, Tampa, it just says New Jersey. I don't know where they'd – I guess they'd play probably in Newark. Um, right, where the Nets used to play. Right. And uh, wait, in Newark or at the Meadowlands? Out at the Meadowlands Arena? Well, I don't know. I'm just saying there's, there's an empty – Right. Yeah, they're in Kansas City. They're all plus 650. So that's the next tier. Oh, after this, I didn't notice. Syracuse plus 900 uh, and then it rounds out with Louisville at plus 1400. So anyway, you can wager on where the Toronto Raptors will play. Where's Kansas city. Kansas city is in Missouri. 
<laughs> Are they on their list? I think there is a Kansas City, Kansas. Too. There is. That, you're right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I got. Uh, I was the smartass, wise guy. Uh, right. <laughs> Plus six fifty. So that's the tier right after Buffalo. So Buffalo is actually more favored than Kansas City as for this betting purpose. Well, I'll let Matt make his pick because then I have some thoughts on several of those options. I'm so I'll give you the order. These are in order of most likely based on the betting to least likely Nashville, Toronto, Buffalo. And then these three are tied Tampa, New Jersey, Kansas city, and then Syracuse and then Louisville. I'm surprised to see Nashville so high. I feel like there must be something I missed if Nashville is the betting favorite, but I am, I think I'm going to go with Toronto. Um, I think they're going to play there. I don't know. It's there's they still have time. There's still enough that can change between now and then. I feel like the safe pick that's probably their preferred locale. Um, yeah, but, but you're not dealing with the Raptors or the NBA's decision this week. No, it's Canada. You're right. It's uh, the prime minister. They've been very conservative. All those filthy American athletes coming into his uh, country for good reason. <laughs> well, you know, pretty smart, probably, but. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to say Toronto. I don't know. I don't have any inside info one way or the other. I'm intrigued now to figure out why Nashville is the betting favorite because I'm going to pick mine because Jonah seems like he has a little something to say. So I'm going to make mine. I'm going to make my pick because I don't want his whatever he has to say to color my prediction because he's probably going to have something very common sense. But we've talked about it before, and I'm just going to go back to our previous conversation. Kansas City makes sense because it doesn't have an NBA team but it has the arena. It has the infrastructure. I'm sure it's a major metropolitan area. They don't, uh, Buffalo would be tough because you're dealing with a hockey. You don't, you want your hockey players mingling with the NBA players. You got two sets of teams coming in and out of these locker rooms and in through pretty much the same arena complex. So I'm going to say, although Tampa would fit that. No, because Tampa has a, uh, I'm going to say Kansas City for that specific reason, for the fact that because they don't have hockey, that they will have more flexibility. Well, I think Matt's correct. What I thought all along is that the Raptors would play in Toronto, that they would figure out a way between the NBA, the team, and the city. And I think I've read that they haven't made that determination yet, but that is something they're talking to Canadian and Toronto officials about how to make it work, how to make it safe. You know, the NBA got through a season without any outbreaks once the players arrived in Orlando, once they got through the intake. And I think that might weigh into the decision as well as the fact that Toronto hosted games for the NHL and didn't have problems. So these professional leagues, other than Major League Baseball, seem like they maybe can pull it off safely. And the Raptors are a big part of the economy in Toronto, even if fans aren't coming to the games. And I think it might. I think that's where it lands. However, if the Canadian government does make the same decision and Toronto's off the table, I don't agree with those rankings of the city. I don't think Buffalo should be that high for reasons we've discussed already, having to do a lot to do with hockey. I think Kansas City is in the mix. But and the a couple fact that every time I reach out to people, I find out that no one's ever no one's approached the people who met, who count in Buffalo to check on it. Yeah, and I don't think that it's really being considered. I think if the Raptors can't play in Toronto, you start looking at New York City, where they could split the Barclays with the Brooklyn team, and they don't have to – it might be harder to do at MSG with the Rangers, but there's a possibility that the Raptors could be based in New York City and playing games on either one of those floors when the 
gym is available. There's a lot more hotels and different amenities and practice gyms that maybe can be used in that area. And it cuts down the travel for all of the teams involved in that division if the Raptors are based out of New York City. And then two other cities that I think are the most likely to get NBA franchises if there were expansion, Las Vegas and Seattle, I think could also make sense in terms of if the Raptors need a temporary home for this season, I think it's probably going to be in a city that the NBA is maybe trying out or laying the groundwork for expansion. And Kansas City does fall into that. So, I so think far away. Of those three to, cities. to send Toronto all the way out west, though. Sure, but what does it matter? Have them, I mean, sure. Because they, have, the they still have to play the teams playing. in the yeah, east. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah that's why I thought maybe New Jersey or New York, um, if you have to do it, makes more sense just because of what Jonah's talking about with travel. And even it won't be a bubble, but it's a you know bit more of a controlled environment if you're sharing with another team or you're you're in the same geographic location you're not dealing with different governments in different um, you know parts of the country that have you know different regulations and different rules regarding what guys can and can't do do you want a team in vegas if the odds or if the goal is to prevent teams from having outbreaks do you want a team in vegas where you know guys could uh, enjoy some extracurriculars if they're so inclined and, and may you know, you get themselves. That. No, you don't. Exactly. So you'd rather, I mean, you could do the same in New York City, but I think it's a little bit more um, controlled in terms of they've got teams there that New York City's kind of um, not completely shut down, but it's not what New York City normally is. So yeah, I think there's there's some of those factors that they'd like to consider. And I don't know, I, Jonah's point is an interesting one about them wanting to go to, a, maybe wanting to go to a market where they could expand the game in the future. But I think as we learned with baseball in Buffalo, you know, how many new Blue Jays fans are there because the Blue Jays played in Buffalo this summer? You know, I, a few I don't know, like, mm. you know, it didn't have much of a buzz because people couldn't go. So if, if fans can't go to these games, it might be hard to use it as some sort of expansion tool. It would be a nice little buzz for a moment. Um, and then it would probably simmer out if, if fans can't be there checking out the team. Raptors uh, officials uh, toured Bridgestone Arena last week. So that's why Nashville is... Nashville makes sense. They host the SEC basketball tournament every year there. Um, So they've got, you know, things in place, Vanderbilt's there um, for practices and such. But um, it makes sense. If you want the hockey, if you want want multiple teams sharing an arena, I don't know. I wonder, though, how much are they looking at the possibility that you get into the season and you can't play in Canada, but certain states in the U.S. are allowing – fans and are they looking for a city in a state where there can potentially be a small crowd or do they not want that i mean you know you really don't know exactly what they're looking for in a new home market yeah in that case tennessee come on down um and maybe no that state is a- tax i wonder if that's a if that's a issue also get your players there and uh if that's your home base that's at least a year of no state well, tax. there's also there's also Florida, Florida too. the Disney facilities where they had the bubble, I think the NBA could just say, you know, that worked well for us before. The Raptors trained nearby before the bubble started. 
the players probably don't mind being based out of Florida for a little while. That might be another potential solution that's kind of like NBA property now, and they could just continue on with what they did with multiple teams with only one team. But probably not Buffalo. No. All right. Yeah, I don't think this lands on Buffalo in any way. Any final thoughts here before we wrap it up? None. I want to mention one more time that Shampo Travis Bison Kirshner is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Our thanks, uh, as always, to CTBK for sponsoring the show. Uh, To Donnie Fraunhofer, um, my... uh, my repeated thanks uh, for his donation of his musical talents. Uh, and, you know, I don't mention it enough too. And a lot of people, uh, we don't do it every show, but the bumper music that we use for Joel Staniszewski uh, for his better, that is Joel Staniszewski. Um, so that's why the music changes up for Joel. Uh, but uh, Danny Fraunhofer with the, the intro uh, and outro music for us here on the show, that's been pretty cool. And also pretty cool to find out, uh, which I don't think we mentioned on the show, uh, and I didn't know this when uh, Donnie and Intrepid Travelers, by the way, let's plug Intrepid Travelers, the group uh, that he is in with Jonah Bronstein's brother, Adam Bronstein, when they reached out to us to offer to give us uh, some of this music that Donnie Fraunhofer is Bucky Gleason's godson. And uh, I heard from Bucky uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I just thought, you know, it's perfect small world stuff. Um, what do you think we gotta Godfather get Bucky Bucky's like? I think we get Donnie on to talk about what's Godfather Bucky like. When you're going to Bucky Gleason on the day of his daughter's birthday or daughter's wedding day, you know, what kind of favors can you ask of him? Okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's re- see if you can help arrange that, Jonah, uh, whether it be through your brother or whatever. Reach out, see if Donnie wants to come on the show, talk some, uh, talk some Uncle Bucky. And... Uh, and I'm sure that probably on the very next episode of Tim Graham and Friends, we will have Uncle Bucky uh, to retort. Um, good stuff. All right, guys. I miss Thanks. Uncle Bucky. Well, uh, yeah, same here. Same here. Let's get Uncle Bucky on this show. All right, guys. Thanks. We'll